This week, I'm going to talk about sample projects. Okay. Now, you, you saw my note in the, in the, the, the file for um, what I was going to be talking I about. Did. I did. I took a sneaky peek. It's, it's a little tough to actually narrow that down because people might say, well, sample projects for what? So in this case, I specifically mean sample projects for, for bug reports. Mm-hmm. And more specifically, sample projects for bug reports to Apple. Mm-hmm. Because I really haven't written that many sample projects for any other bug reporting systems. No, because other bug reporting systems would not be for an IDE, so they wouldn't need a project, blah, blah, blah. So we've actually talked about Radar, Apple's bug reporting system before, in episode six, which was for you, I'll follow Radar. And since that was in June of 2012, which is over two years ago at this point, I barely remember anything about what we actually said. <laughs> and I know I can't rely on you to actually remind yeah. me of, of nah. stuff. Who to, are you? To, yeah. So... Uh, the thing, however, that, that brought up the topic again for me was Brent Simmons' recent blog post. So he's got his website, inessential.com, and about two days ago he talked about having um, a specific location for his sample projects. And in his case, it was in Tilda Projects Bugs. Now, so that got me thinking about it, but I don't have a, like one place that's just for bug sample projects. And do you know why, Wolf? Um, because every project is a sample project in your eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> surprisingly close, given that you were just pulling that out of you. Um, I don't have one that's just for bug reports because I actually put all my projects up on GitHub. At least for the ones that I know I can talk about publicly. Mm-hmm. And the reason I put them on GitHub is because I like to mirror the reports that I give Apple on OpenRadar. Right. Which is openradar.appspot.com, which has been going for a bunch of years now. And I don't think that's ever, you know, the, the, the idea that, well, oh, we'll just put all of our bugs on there. Well, no, not everyone's ever going to put their, their bugs on there. Thank you. But I, like, the, yeah. I just want to say thank you, Tim Burks, for running that so long. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, it feels good. It feels like you're, you're doing a bit of a service mm-hmm. to do it on there. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I also don't know if I've, ever, if I've ever actually used it for like looking up information from other people. Oh, I have. I, you have? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And I do think that when you want to say, well, hey, Apple, I've, I've filed this bug. The nice thing when you say that publicly is that you can say what the open radar URL so that other people can see that information. So I, I put all those things up on there, but I still, I've still created quite a few. So I want to talk about ways to do that. Potential ways to do that. So there are three potential ways to do that I want to talk about in my little, little time here. The first one is what I will call the kitchen sink approach, <laughs> which is if you find a bug using your project, you just paste the whole project in there, into Apple's uh, uh, bug reporter website. And that'll work. And it's actually, I think a lot of times people say, well, I don't want to do that because I don't want to give my whole project to Apple. I don't want to you know, publicize it in that way. And one thing that I can tell you from working at Apple, from my experience there, is that, in fact, if you're worried about your project falling into the wrong hands, pe- people finding out about your, your tips and tricks or your company secrets, you know what? Nobody cares about your company secrets at Apple. It's just there are probably some 
teams that would, you know, say really love to know how their competitor does certain things because Apple has so many things now that, you know, some teams are actually directly competing with, with companies that are submitting apps to the App Store. But you know what? The people who are actually dealing with the bugs, uh, the developers, the, the, the Xcode folks that are dealing with this stuff, they don't care. So, in fact, in that case, you could really just go ahead and do that if you really wanted. And I don't think you'd have that much to worry about. The real danger is not that. The real danger, well, there are two problems with it. One I'll mention now and one I'll mention when I'm talking about other, some of the other approaches. The first one is, is that Apple is more likely to reject your bug report hmm. if you do that. And the reason they do that is, is the same reason that you did it that way, which is that you're not helping them narrow it down at all. Hmm. You're giving them the entire thing, and now they have to spelunk through it and find out exactly what's wrong. They don't know the, the specific cause of it. And they might be willing to do that for you, and they might not. So you should you know, give, know that if you do that in order to save time, you may not actually be saving that much time. You know? but, you know, but it does work. So the second approach, which is better than the first approach, is what I'm calling the Jenga option. <laughs> and, and I think, Wolf, I think you understand that, that reference at this point. Because what you want to do then is you want to take that project that rep- replicates the problem, mm-hmm. but also does a whole bunch of other things. Even, even your relatively simple iOS project probably does a whole bunch of extra stuff that, that isn't needed for this bug. Mm-hmm. And then gradually remove <laughs> files and code and methods until you get to the smallest thing that will both reproduce the problem and still actually will, the smallest thing that will still reproduce the problem. And that's tough. The reason this is the, the second best option instead of, in my mind, the, third, the, the, the best option is because even though it might seem like it's straightforward, oh, you just remove things until, until, the, you, know, until you get it very small, it's actually not that easy as, in fact, predicated on, on the Jenga game. <laughs> kind of wobbly. Kind of wobbly. Well, it's just that, that, that getting from, from that you know, point A to point B here is not necessarily straightforward because you don't know what, what causes the bug and what doesn't. So you may, you know, every time you remove something big and then that no longer reproduces a problem, well, now you've got to go back and put the big thing back in and then, you know, split it up and do that. And of course, it's, it's in some way like a binary search. You know, you can do the whole thing where, okay, remove half the project. Does it still happen? Okay. Put that part back, remove the other half. But it can easily get yourself down, you know, some rabbit holes. And I've done this as well in that um, sometimes when I've tried this, you know, you think you still reproduce the problem, but, but you don't, but you haven't, you know, maybe you haven't rebuilt or whatever. So you can, it can be tough to get that right. And it can be very time consuming. And in fact, I don't believe I've ever talked about this story before. And it happened years and years and years ago. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. But one of the, one of the cases that I remember most clearly of using this method was when we actually found a problem in Xcode that was reproducible with Microsoft's Word project. <laughs> so I actually wound up, so they wouldn't give us the project, mm-hmm. which, you know, makes sense. So I had to go over to their office. And I spent the afternoon playing Jenga with Microsoft Word. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was actually kind of, you know, it was, it was a puzzle. It was kind of fun to do, but it did take a bunch of hours for me to say, okay, take this out, take this out. Does it still happen? Does it still happen? Does it still happen? And gradually get it down to that, that uh, nugget 
uh, of what we needed that really showed me what the problem was. Were, were you going to say something? I was just playing Jenga with Word, Microsoft Word. Great title right there. <laughs> so, so that did work for me. And that did give us what we needed. But I'm going to propose a third way of doing it, which is actually probably the best way as far as I'm concerned, which I would call the kindling method. Because in, in our wonderful history of metaphors here, this will be one of the better ones, I think. So, you know, you've got your, you've got your giant stove over here that, that produces fire, produces heat in, in a way that you understand and is backed up by our entire technical infrastructure in the United States and does everything you need to. So that can, that can reproduce what you need to reproduce. And you're over here, you know, on the forest floor in the rain <laughs> with a couple of logs or a couple of, you know, and some kindling and a couple of rocks. And you're trying to reproduce that same thing over here. Now, that metaphor makes it sound like, well, that's crazy. Why would you want to do that? But I actually think it's the best way. And the reason I think it's the best way is because it's easier, I think, to build up what you need than to change an existing thing to do what you need. And I think we've, we've talked about this before, this idea that, that maintenance development, it can be very difficult mm-hmm. when you say, you know, take existing thing and twist it and, and change it. That's a lot harder than saying, well, I'm just going to build everything from scratch starting off now. It wouldn't be good if you said, well, I'll just build everything from scratch. And it'll be just the same thing as the old one, but with no bugs. Well, that, that doesn't work like that. But here, you're not trying to reproduce all the functionality. You're just trying to do this one little thing. And so what I found repeatedly is that I can take you know, a couple of files and move them over and reproduce what I need to reproduce really pretty easily. And so that's what I would say would be the best way to do that. And I've done it repeatedly. I've, I've got a bunch of little stupid projects up there on GitHub. And we just talked about one last week, right? The uh, the long, long cat, and the um, a bunch of others. I, and you know, if I can't give them a funny name, then then you know, why do it? But the important part is that I can I can reproduce the problems mm-hmm. as I see them. So that's um, trying to be a little shorter this time. That's pretty much it for me. Okay, so uh, my topic is backend options for uh, your iOS app. Do we do we need an explicit? Marker on this, uh, <laughs> you know. I was wondering what you're going to do with the the back end stuff. <laughs> but mm-hmm. did you did you take a peek at my notes there? Did you? Uh, I did. That was oh, that's. Okay. But only you you only you didn't give me that much time for this. That's so. true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Not so, that the jokes get any better. Really. <laughs> that's true. It's, I, I almost fear that like when you see it coming up that you that you, you rack my brains for like a week and then come up with something stupid and then feel really bad. <laughs> yeah, it's almost better yeah. to do it on the fly. Yeah, yeah. but. Um, so a lot of uh, iOS apps and Mac apps and web, web apps kind of need this kind of backend option where you have like a database that you store for your servers and probably a little bit of application logic. So I thought I'd just kind of go through the options. I'm thinking about this because I have a currently de- uh, deployed site that deals with video and I'm kind of rewriting it, um, rewriting the backend. And I was <clears throat> not, not, not greatly, but um, and so I'm kind of dealing with these issues again. So it just came to mind that oh, this is stuff that a lot of people have to deal with, and because I'm also processing big video files and transcoding, my needs go a little bit beyond what the typical need is, which is kind of I think yields some other insights. So let's get started. So the kind of basic way, kind of reflecting your kindling uh, kind of metaphor there, is uh, kind of building it all up from scratch yourself, and the. And so the, typically that means using a, a uh, private virtual server 
type of provider like Linode or Amazon Web Services or, or Azure. Um, as I think I mentioned before in episode 106, Flappy Kit, I actually am kind of weird because I I do run uh, virtual machines running Linux for my the stuff I need, but I run it all on a Mac Mini at Mac Mini Colo, and that's running Macs servers. Uh, I kind of talked about the upsides and downsides of that. I wouldn't recommend that you emulate what I'm doing, but, but I have a history there. And, <laughs> and maybe one day I'll get off that. But for me, with the, the raw number of VMs I have, it actually makes economic sense for me to do that. Um, so I, in terms of how to set this thing up, uh, I wrote a blog entry a while ago, which I'll link to, um, about how you just kind of it makes sense for you to learn Unix um, just because... Everything is Unix, and it, it it is really a terribly stupid system. And I'm sad that it, you you have to learn it, but you do. And but then you get all this power and you can do anything. And so my it used to be back when I wrote that blog posting, um, my kind of the Unix I would end up deploying for my services was Debian, which was pretty stripped down, you know, base type system. Uh, nowadays I'm using Ubuntu long term support or LTS. And the difference between that and like standard Ubuntu server is that the desktop and server releases they release every six months with security updates for nine months and long term support the Ubuntu server LTS uh, apparently is released only every two years and has five years of support um, so considerably longer than hence long term support in <laughs> in the name. Um, I understand I was looking at their page today and I saw that it looks like maybe now their desktop or in server product products also have five years of support. So I don't even know if that's a difference anymore. Maybe if you just want a more stable base that isn't revved every six months, you want to go with that. Um, I've been pretty happy with it. Uh, the one thing that I've run into is that it has this automatic security updates, which is fine. Uh, one of the things that it will do is that it will... Uh, essentially automatically update your kernel and you still need to do restart to actually have it applied, but it will go and fetch like new kernels for you and install them. Problem is that it has a partition set aside for this kernel that it will very happily just fill up with and then will, your machine will not be bootable. Uh, so you have to basically watch out for this, which is pretty sucky, especially because kind of like with the uh, Ubuntu server LTS, it's kind of like the idea you're setting up the server so you can walk away from it for a couple years at a time, maybe. And the fact that it fills up this partition to the point where it can't even boot, that's a bit of a problem. So. Uh, but uh, it's just the kind, of the, the kind of the fit and finish I expect from Unix systems. <laughs> um, for databases, I'm, I'm still using MySQL. Uh, eventually, I would like to use PostgreSQL, but I still don't. Um, this is, I actually led the charge kind of against MySQL back in the day. Um, back in 2001, I wrote an article for uh, Adam Anks and Friends uh, Tidbits, uh, old school <laughs> Mac Apple-flavored online magazine, um, which initially was distributed as a hypercard stack. How, how authentic is that? Uh, kind of talking about the problems of MySQL and but it turns out that I didn't address it in that article, but it was really a complaint against the index sequential access method, a storage engine that's part of MySQL. And there's this other engine called IndioDB that you can use that is offers acid transactions. 
um, atomicity, consistency, isolation, durability, the type of you know big boy database stuff. And if you just use that engine and put in your in your uh, DD, your DDLs, your uh, data definition language, like your create table statements in your SQL, if you just specify that you should use the NeoDB engine, it's, it it works fine. And plus, I have like experience dealing with it. I know how to use the MySQL dump command, and I use this really nice app that oh, I need sh- really should put a link to called Querius. Um, that's a nice front end to. Uh, MySQL, a nice Mac app for that. Um, there's another open source tool that's also really nice, whose name escapes me. It used to be called Kogo MySQL, but I think they recently changed the name. But anyway, it's all so there's a lot of good tooling there for it. So I just, and it's basically it's never let me down. So it, it just would be pain to move. And I just haven't had enough pain to get me to, the pain has not, the pain to move has not outweighed the pain to keep things going. So. In terms of application logic type stuff, I know a lot of people are fans of PHP, which I am definitely not. I definitely agree with the kind of the fractal of bad design uh, article, which I guess I should actually link to. That's a pretty, pretty good one, too. Um, and so uh, for, I would recommend either using uh, something like Rails or use something or Sinatra or using Node. And for Rails, I would recommend it for if you're building kind of a contenty site that's databasey and all that. But if you're just kind of a lot of sites nowadays, especially if you're like basically building an iOS app, is that you essentially don't need HTML template generation and a lot of the stuff that Rails provides. You basically need a REST API, and that's where what I really like about Node, um, Sinatra, which is 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 more stripped down, is pretty nice in terms of it gives you access to the HTTP level more directly and it's and it keeps you in the lovely Ruby language. But I really like Node um, because it for me it's kind of it's a sweet spot of power and ease of use. Um, I, in my metaphor, since we keep on bringing out these horrible analogies, is that uh, you know those razor scooters, which are these like really really small lightweight scooters that are usually f- collapsible, and then their wheels are, like, from, like, rollerblades. You know, they're pretty lightweight. Like, imagine, like, bolting, like, a weed, uh, like, a, a leaf blower engine onto it or something, a gasoline-powered leaf blower engine, so you could <laughs> scoot around town, right? That's what Node is. It's, like, it's a gasoline-powered razor scooter. And it's, it's all sorts of dangerous and, is, is, and probably shouldn't be used for anything. But I found it so refreshing coming from the web optics world, world and coming <laughs> from the Rails world. It's, it's just, it was like, the only thing I needed was an HTTP API, and it gave me that. And so note this, and the stuff that's hard, like parsing HTTP, um, that's written C. And Ryan Dahl did a, an excellent job of, like, he's, he's a crazy man in terms of trying to write uh, an HTTP uh, engine that Ash never called Malloc. So he was kind of, that you know, was kind of his hobby. And he's a crazy man, and I love him for it. And so, uh, so that's kind of like gasoline part of the Razor scooter. And so initially, when I got involved in Node when I was young, I had to essentially write my own HTTP stack file server. Um, nowadays, uh, I would would recommend Rome. So who's crazy? <laughs> well, yeah, of course I'm crazy. Yeah, but uh, nowadays you'd use uh, probably Express.js, which seems to be kind of the default choice. Um, I have recently learned about Happy, H A H A P I dot JS, um, which is kind of higher level and it's really meant to support 
uh, more HTTP REST APIs uh, generation. And I've used a little bit of development. I haven't deployed it yet, and it seems quite nice. So I would recommend checking that out. So how does Happy make you feel? (laughs) Are you actually referencing the pop song there? (laughs) No, I'm not. Okay, well, that would would be uh, out of character for you. Um. The one thing, a couple of trips here, uh, trips, I think that's a little Freudian slip there. A couple of tips there is that I would recommend uh, when you go to install Node on your Linux, you should install it via a tool called NVM, which is kind of hard to Google for because usually that's kind of shorthand for like never never mind. (laughs) Never mind, yeah. (laughs) But it stands for Node Version Measure. And uh, it's... If you install Node that way, it's easy to upgrade to new versions and, and older versions and backwards and forwards and everywhere you want. If you do that from the get-go, you're all set. The And then uh, Node apps are famous that when exception is thrown, by default, the server terminates and your process terminates. And <laughs> so uh, you need you need another tool to keep your Node process actually running and listening to connections. Uh, I would recommend there's the two big ones out there is uh, Node Supervisor and another one called Forever. I would recommend Node Supervisor. It's older, um, it does less, but it's only like 300 lines of JavaScript. And and I've noticed that Forever brings in a bunch of dependencies. I don't know what's doing. It seems to be very full featured, and it's something probably at least I don't need, and you probably don't need it either. So if you just basically start up your Node app with Supervisor, it will restart your app when it crashes, and no one will notice. Yeah. In terms of uh, actually kind of a, uh, one of the things I want to get more of, right now I've been pretty much just deploying VMs directly and setting things up by hand. And my little homework project for myself is to get better at kind of automating this stuff. And I used to kind of just essentially write down big markdown files about instructions and how to set this stuff up and kind of have you know recipes that I would then for my future self. And future self has definitely has appreciated that. Uh, I've used that extensively, but but this is all kind of a recipe is kind of you know like computerish, right? And it's automatable. So there's a program out there called Ansible, and Ansible allows you to basically automate the setup and installation of software and systems on uh, on these Linux servers. So there's it's. Very lightweight. It a lot of, there's a lot of um, competition in this realm. There's things like Chef and Puppet. Uh, Ansible is nice because it doesn't require any remote software daemons to be installed and running and checking and polling for new configurations. Because if you're like me, it's not like you're managing like hundreds or thousands of machines. You're probably managing just dozens. So it's uh, you, you actually don't, and it tends to be across services too and across uh, virtual uh, virtual virtual server providers. So. Uh, it's not even something you really might be able to centralize easily anyway. So uh, it's all, all Ansible needs is basically SSH and Python. So that's pretty lightweight requirement. Uh, essentially what you do is you write out these things called playbooks, which are these files written in YAML that essentially are the instructions of how to set up a server. And if you pop them open, they look pretty human-readable, and they're pretty explicit of what they, how they work. And as a person who I've actually not used Ansible directly yet. I've just looked at a few playbooks, and it's, it seems very straightforward. And even though I don't exactly how know how it works, it I could kind of piece it together just in my head. So it's pretty straightforward. There's a a virtualization software called VirtualBox that's kind of competitor to like VMware Fusion, but it's open source. 
and it allows you to basically run Linux virtualized on your Mac. And I'd recommend this along with a tool called Vagrant, which basically give, provides an API to VirtualBox to allow you to easily create and tear down uh, virtual machines on your Mac from the command line. So you don't have to go through a bunch of steps every time you want to uh, basically test your Ansible playbooks. So it basically allows you to rapidly test these playbooks so you can bring up a bare metal Linux VM, run your playbook against it, and make sure it's setting itself up right, and then can tear it down again. Of course, this has all been kind of like with the kindling thing, you know, you're you're wet and you need shelter and you're going to build civilizations the ground up type <laughs> stuff. Um, so yeah. I would not not necessarily recommend this. I, you know, I, I have a long history with Unix, so this is stuff kind of... And you can see, even even with my long history of Unix, I'm still kind of doing things caveman that I, I, I'm still striving to automate some of this stuff. And maybe this is just all a lot more than you really want to get into because you basically just want an HTTP API, gosh darn it. Um, Where are you telling people not to try this at home? <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you might have you, your comparative advantage might be writing iOS apps instead of actually figuring out Linux. Right. So, I would. So there's fortunately we live in a modern era, and there's an entire thing called backend as a service, or BAAS if you really want to acronym is whatever. Um, I'm not helping you with pronunciation this time. <laughs> Ever since that one, the episode that shall not be named. <laughs> By you. <laughs> um, so the big player here is Parse and uh, Parse.com. And it was bought by Facebook, I don't know how many years ago, a year ago, two years ago, something like that. Was it that long ago? It, 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 you know, we're all old guys. If things move fast, I think it's been. <laughs> okay. And uh, so Parse, uh, from I've heard good things about it. I've heard bad things about it. It's apparently pretty easy to get started with. Uh, John Sterling, uh, I think it was over a year ago, did a nice series of rants against it. So he was very upset about it in terms of its availability and its API. So there's there's good, there's bad. Um, it's free for, for to basically get started, but it's much like you know the drug dealer. The first one's free, and then I've had people who had to move off it because it gets very expensive very fast if you if you use it a lot. Um, and I would say the other, but it's, it's worth checking out depending on your usage pattern. Uh, for my my current project that involves videos and transcoding it'd be fine for like the api like the accounting type of thing but i basically need a, a virtual machine that can run ffmpeg to transcode videos so they're not they don't offer that so i need to go with bigger guns uh so that's i've been seriously looking at microsoft azure which is higher level and it's very interesting because it's both higher level and it also offers low level stuff so like amazon aws type uh elastic computing elastic cloud computing uh, EC2 type stuff, uh, offers it all. And it's actually pretty interesting to the point where um, it's kind of almost like the platonic ideal where you have like this fragment of JavaScript that kind of represents your HTTP API. And you can upload it to Azure and they will figure out how to run it against whatever VMs they need to and they'll figure out how to scale it for you and all this. And it's pretty slick. And uh, I think what? it can do... Yeah, yes, and it, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, basically, they're running you know Linux server with Node in the background, and they have like you can also write C sharp if you want and stuff like that. But you know it's it's it seems pretty slick. Um, the they give you JavaScript APIs for databases too. You don't even have to like run your own MySQL and all that. So you can then pay them to run the, the relational databases for you too. And yeah, so it seems all very 
very uh, put, well put together. Uh, I have not used it in anger, but uh, I probably at least will be giving a shot with it. And uh, it's and what's nice is that it supports iOS and of course Android, and mm. it also supports you know just plain Jane HTML websites type stuff. Now, how do you pronounce it? Azure. Yeah, no, that's it. Uh, okay. <laughs> hey, are you just calling me out there? What? Me? No. <laughs> and they also offer raw VMs, which I'm tr- still trying to figure out, like, what the difference is between, like, their, their dedicated VMs where you can, like, build your own stack from scratch, like I, I mentioned before. Or they also have this, this workers type thing, which seems more transient, which might be a fit for me or something like that. But I'm not sure. I have to look into it. Um, altogether, it seems kind of... Uh, I, I, a little birdie tells, told me that uh, AWS, AWS would probably offer something similar to like the auto-scaling ease of a JavaScript deployment that uh, Azure has today. But Azure's had it for a while back. As a matter of fact, that's uh, Brent Simmons did his little videos there. I think he was talking about that, and that was, uh, I think, a couple of years ago back. So yeah. they, they have, they've been doing this for a while, and, they, and people seem happy with it. So... Um, I would recommend checking out Parse um, and also checking out Azure, and uh, and you know playing one against the other. And uh, I guess that's about it for me. Okay, my only note is um, a, a bit of amusement at you saying that YAML was your definition of human readable. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I, I mean, I don't think I, I do think this might be. Cool. I, it's, the reason you're doing it here is because it is faster doing it here than doing it on a, a blog. But for the people who don't have any idea how to do this stuff, obviously the 20 minutes you've been talking about it aren't enough to get them up and running. But it might be interesting, you know. So it might, you know, those people will still need to go somewhere else if they want to get full tutorials on how to set this stuff up or oh, to get a sense of how this all this stuff should work. Right. This is just like the lay of the land type stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess it's unlikely that you would go back and then write those posts for people to get them started. But it would be nice if somebody could. <laughs> so I guess that's it. So we'll see you next time. <laughs>